Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. This month, our guest is Earl Hughes, someone who's seen it all, well, most of it all, and has scaled the heights of the theatrical profession. He's taken huge budget shows to Las Vegas, South Africa, and Europe, worked with stars such as Shirley MacLaine, was Anne Margaret's stage manager for 17 years. He later went on to be producing manager at the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Florida and the associate producer for Pittsburgh Playhouse and Point Park University, where he taught stage management and oversaw the technical complexities of the university's three stages. He's now retired, and we caught up with him at his spiffy-diffy little lake house, where, as you'll hear, a few motorboats will go by. We started, of course, with the biggest subject, uh huh. Vegas, bringing shows. You've been to Vegas. You've produced in Vegas. You stage managed in Vegas. Yeah. Why is, aside from the obvious, I mean, what's the difference between Vegas and Broadway and the rest of the theater world? Why would, why would we want to go there? Well, basically, the whole game, from my point of view, and having dealt with the performing arts as long as I have, it's entertainment. And the entertainment quality is based on your audience, and that's what theater people have to always understand. You have to understand who is the, your audience and who are you trying to reach. And Vegas is a playground. So the process of Vegas is to be a variety show presenting skits, whereas the common concept of theater and Broadway, even though they match themselves in terms of the size of productions involved, it's like in Vegas... The shows I worked on had 35-piece orchestras, crews of 2025, flying pieces of scenery, wagons going on and off, all the kinds Who were the stars? Uh, the stars that I have worked with have been people like Anne Margaret, who I toured with and worked with for about 14 years. I actually started out with Shirley MacLaine um, as she was gathering her life back together again to do a Broadway show and a national tour. And um, I lasted with her for about two years. Um, the road is a very trying situation. At times, with Shirley MacLaine, I just got tired of it. So I went back to, into the theater in New York. But in that period of time that I went back to the theater in New York, um, Anne Margaret's husband, Roger Smith, kept trying to get me to come and work with his show because I had handled it once when he had problems with his stage manager at that time. And I decided, okay, because the other thing you have to do is you have to make a living. And making a living is probably the hardest thing to do in the theater than I know of. And so I could make a much nicer living doing Anne Margaret than I could do uh, basically the off-off-Broadway theater that I was doing, even though the off-off-Broadway theater was much more satisfying in terms of um, accomplishing a level of art to the entertainment world as compared to entertainment to the art world. What's it like, because you started this, I want, I, want to go, I want to explore this a little bit, being on the road, okay, um, with a certain company, with a certain star, with a certain same people every day. What's, what's it like? Is it squished? Is it too tense? What happens along the way? Well, basically, I mean, the rhythm 
of my time with Anne Margaret was basically working about six to seven months out of the year. So I had a lot of downtime, you know, and that was, that's always helpful. The road is intense because it, it is a 24 hour a day gig, you know, um, and, and loading into Vegas, Vegas would be 14 shows in two weeks. Uh, you would put in a new show in eight hours. You would turn it around in three hours in terms of a technical rehearsal, and then you'd start performing for an audience. So there was certainly a high degree of pressure involved when you're dealing with a place like Caesar's Palace and the Maximus showroom. Uh, so you're talking about a three... Did you say a three-hour tech? Yeah, basically it runs down to... The rhythm of Vegas is the show will close at around midnight, 1 o'clock. We'll go in, it'll take them about three, maybe four hours, and so we'll go in around 4 o'clock in the morning. It will then take us about eight hours to physically load the show in. Then we'll do a rundown with the orchestra, 35 pieces, reading new charts, music, get that out of the way. And then there'll be a little break, and then probably sometime around 4 o'clock, we will actually be running the first round of tech rehearsal, and your first show is going to be around 7.30. So we're talking a 24-hour period here of turnaround, taking out a show, loading in a show with... Okay, because I saw the Ann Margaret Show at Radio City. Yes. And you had live motorcycles. Well, that okay. was a little bit different. That was more uh, that was more planned theatrical event that um, uh, had a little bit more time to it because um, there wasn't a show previously there that we were trying to get out to get the next show in uh, because in Vegas it's all about the showrooms never going dark. You know, um, they do seven days a week. Yeah, seven days a week, two shows a day. You know, and that's why in a two-week period, do 14 shows. Um, so Anne Margaret would do two shows a day. Yeah, two shows a day. Usually the shows would be, it'd usually be a 7.30 show and then like a 10 o'clock show. And it would be, she'd always have about an hour, hour and a half in between shows. And the show for her, her show, usually there's an opening act, takes up 20, 25 minutes, and then her show is normally in the neighborhood of 60, 65 minutes long. Casinos want to get people in and out. <laughs> so the star name attracts them to the casino. They see the show. Then they go out and hit the tables. And that's the turnaround time for <laughs> um, Vegas shows. A uh, thing like Radio City Music Hall, which was probably, I think, the largest star act ever mounted at Radio City at that time. I, there could have been you know, successors to that idea. But yes, it was it was a show that involved me as associate producer putting together not only the Rockettes and their participation, but things like motorcycle numbers, where motorcycles rose out of the floor of the stage, laser light show. You know, it was all to be an extravaganza entertainment produced by her husband, Roger Smith. It was sort of to culminate her performing career. I had talked to them for years. When I first joined them, uh, she never did anything but play Vegas, uh, Atlantic, n no, she wasn't even playing Atlantic, Vegas and Tahoe. And that was her main gig. Every so often she'd go to Atlantic City. But it was all about Vegas and Tahoe. And uh, finally convinced Roger that he could scale the show into about three semi-trucks, down to being some kind of touring package. And so then she did 
some touring, and that sort of prompted her. I always thought she would do great in New York, and so uh, I kept trying to convince them that, you know, she should, because I'd, I had done um, Shirley MacLaine at the Palace, uh, which was my first Broadway show. There, Th- there, these all sound unbelievably huge. Uh, it, it's, I mean, the way upper end of, of the carrying stuff around and setting it up spectrum oh, here. Well, it's, it's not as huge as a rock and roll show. You know, I mean, my, one of my drivers was uh, a, a truck driver for, for um, uh, Paul McCartney. And, um, you know, I got the chance to see that show at the Meadowlands, and he had 14 trucks. 14 semis. 14 semis, you know. And so, you know, these packages, rock and roll has set the record for how big a package you can put together on the road and move it from one place to the other. I heard you two uh, a few years ago had three separate stages, each one like 60 tons or something like that. You know, I I mean, it's... it's phenomenal to me. The shows I dealt with were just large shows. <laughs> there are bigger shows out there. You told us about loading in and, and doing Vegas. Yeah. Is this part of a tour? I mean, because you, you went around the world with well, Anne Margaret. Yeah. You went to what, uh, um, South, South Africa. Africa you went to Spain, Europe and yeah. Sweden. Yeah. And you're well, taking this massive show everywhere. Well, in the world of touring... The show has to be expandable and contractual, contract to the venue you're playing. Right. You know. I mean, so, I worry about taking an extra bag onto United. <laughs> so, you know, like uh, when we played South Africa, Sun City in South Africa, um, it was a, uh, 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 an arena. Uh, I think it was a soccer arena, actually. But it was enclosed, so I'm not sure exactly what kind of arena it was, was. But it was an arena, so they had to build the stage for us, and they had to put in the fly system for us. And then they built a lot of the stuff based on what we were using there, so our package was a little bit more streamlined in terms of what had to get on airplanes and what had to fly and what could be freighted there, oh. you know. And then Stockholm, Sweden, was um, at the China Teatro, in, in Stockholm, and it was probably the smallest stage I think Anne Margaret has ever probably tried to play on, and it was very much similar to the old vaudeville houses. Um, so these these shows have to expand and contract, you know, as to the venue. So well, part of the touring process is scoping out the venue. So I would advance check out the stage, understand what would work, what wouldn't work. But they'd go back to Anne margaret choreographer Lester Wilson at that time, explain to them, you may have to cut this because you don't have that much wing space. You can't have this because they don't have enough fly space. We don't have the depth, you know, to move the bandstand up and down. And then the show would go in. We'd usually load the show in and four to six hours, whether it was, you know, the St. Louis Fox or we were in uh, um, Toronto or Montreal or, you know, wherever the show might play. And the show would then need to expand and contract based on what the actual venue space was because, you know, and and that would be worked out in basically a run-through in... uh, if the show, she was touring with probably a 75-minute show, so we would figure these things out in a tech that would 
be about 75 minutes. <laughs> you know, so it'd be a run of the show. 75-minute tech. We put up a community show here at a local theater, and we've got 10 out of 12s but going on. You must on. understand, you know, I'm carrying my own lighting rig. I'm carrying my own lighting designer. You know, all we're doing is loading in, setting up, focusing. We're not having to go through, is this look working? Is that look working? Does she need to be on stage left instead of stage right? Does that need piece of scenery? All of that is... You're not final tweaking the no, show no, here. No, no, no. We're just, we're making it fit. It's more like, you know, uh, a shoehorn, <laughs> you know. Tell me about the hierarchy. Uh, you're obviously the guy at the top who makes sure the show gets there and is all the pieces are there and you get all the personnel there and that's what you're in charge of doing this. Well, the, the, the hierarchy structure and say like Anne Margaret, basically the hierarchy structure consisted of, uh, my background, which made me valuable was that I started out in technical theater and not in management of theater. Mm -hmm. So that technical sense, um, is very, helpful when you're solving technical problems from a management point of view. Right. So the structure basically is uh, there would be a local promoter who would then, Roger Smith is the producer, and he would decide with Anne Margaret the consistency of the show. Then my job was to take those pieces basically and through personnel, you know, I had road carpenter, road electrician, carried designers, costumes where Ann Margaret had her own dresser, I had her own costume supervisor, there's a company manager that helps move the people around. All that kind of structure is um, uh, organized so that um, you basically take all these pieces which can be chaos and just organize them into a system of priorities. Um, and that, you know, and the system of priorities is what gets through the door first. You know, you can't put the bandstand up unless you've got the floor down, <laughs> you know. This, this is going to be a dumb question, but it was, it, who was your stage manager for all this? <laughs> or how also, many did you have? Uh, uh, I, had, I, had, I had an assistant stage manager. My title with Ann Margaret was basically I was associate producer for the Ann Margaret show, but I was Ann Margaret's stage manager. She never looked at me at anything else other than Earl is my stage manager, you know. So I called the shows. I, I, I made sure the pieces all went together. But as for with Roger, I basically advised on the pieces working for whatever circumstances needed to be set up. So the structure was Roger, there was me. As the associate producer and stage manager, and then I had a staff of people all the way down to drivers and carpenters and, like I said, designers and a staff of people. You know, I just didn't at one moment say go and at the next moment mend her costume as it pour underneath her sleeve, you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, there were directors out there on Off 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 Broadway who are cleaning the toilets right now going... Where did I go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> well, I started off off-Broadway, and so, I, you know, it's a growth problem, you know. Well, how do you solve that problem? I mean, you, you got to a position that I'm, I'm going to guess a lot of people are just wide-eyed thinking about. You know, how do you get to something well, that big, up, that matter? Well, what does it take to, to be you? The, the biggest key involved is, I think, basically three things, you know. You've got to be in the right market, which is the right place at the right time. 
and you got to be prepared when it happens. When that moment happens, you have to be prepared that you can handle the moment. And then you need really some kind of understanding guidance that tells you you're not going to fall apart. You're not doing brain surgery. It's not, it is, <laughs> it is the love of what you're doing, you know. So for me, the idea was my father gave me a plane ticket, $500, and said, go to New York because I don't think in Arkansas you're going to find what you want to find in the theater. So I got on a plane, $500, went to New York. What year was this? This was 1973. So $500 went a heck of a lot longer than it goes now. Now, yeah, $500 is probably $2,000 now in right. relationship to that kind of money. What yeah. kind of theater were you doing in Arkansas? And how'd you, uh, how'd you get started there? Oh, I graduated from college. And then after graduating from college, I went and did a summer of summer stock. And What was your degree in college? Uh, BFA in theater arts. But it was there were only about 15 of us in the theater department, so it wasn't like a broad experience <laughs> realm. But I really liked it. I really liked doing theater a lot. What school was this? This was Arkansas State University. Okay. okay. And it was, you know, it was a small... It started out as an agricultural school, and then it became a university. Actually, the day I started there, it turned into a university. I'm not sure why, but... They do that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I got my degree from there. I tried one. I graduated a semester early, so I went and tried a semester of graduate school. Trying, thinking, oh, I'll get my MFA in lighting design, and then I can teach. And I hated it, and my father understood I hated it. And then uh, I applied as an internship for, for, for summer stock, you know, uh, at the Barn Theater in Augusta, Michigan, Jack Ragazzi. Had a lot of fun doing it. It was a lot of fun. And so when I explained to my father, you know, this is what I really want to do, he basically um, told me, well, you're not going to find it in Arkansas. <laughs> so that's when I went off to New York. And I got lucky. I was walking down the street, and I saw this little off-Broadway off theater. Um, they had a second-floor loft. And um, I went up the stairs, and I said, I'm willing to volunteer. Is there anything I can do? And this tall, distinguished, practical-looking guy by the name of Marshall Mason, who, by the way, just recently got a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Tonys, said, can you push a broom? And I said, oh, I can push a broom. I can build a set. I'm a carpenter. And he goes, okay. And he hands me a broom, and I started working on... Um, you, you just like walked into an unknown theater yeah. mm -hmm. and wandered into Marshall. Was he Marshall Mason back then or was he just on his way up? Uh, he had just mounted uh, Hot Hill Baltimore down in the village. Right, so he was working with Lanford Wilson at so the at time. At that point, yes, Lanford. That's when I also. Was that Mr. Him. Wilson's first hit? Oh, no, no. Or had, well, that, had he... that was his first highly recognizable. And that was, let's put it that was his first commercial success. Gotcha. You know, he had he had he had artistic successes. The Circle Rep at that point had been running for five years, and then that was the first show that got moved out of the Circle okay. Rep theater and uh, became a commercial success. What I got started with was was a show uh, called um, "When You Coming Back, Red Rider." Well, the first Marshall gave me my first job in the theater in New York, and that was to pushing a broom. 
well, paying job. That was not a paying job. My first paying job, when he found out what I could actually do, he paid me to go repair the set of Hot L Baltimore down in the village because it had been running a while and was getting a little ratty and stuff. So Well used. Well used, so needed some repair work. So that was my first paying job in New York. My first staff job in New York after Marshall saw what I could do working as a sort of a volunteer on a show called um, When You're Coming Back, Red Rider with uh, Brad Dourif and um, Kevin Conway. People will know Brad Dourif for two things. He was in Dune, and he was the voice of that crazy doll. Chucky? Chucky. I I remember him from uh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, yes, and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And Dune, I tried to forget years ago. That was awful. Um, uh, Lord of the Rings, Grima Wormtongue, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that was my first encounter um, uh, with When when You Came Back, Red Rider. And uh, um, Marshall then hired me as uh, Circle Rep's first technical director. For whatever reason, my relationship with those people at Circle Rep, I was the technician. They were the directors, the playwrights, the designers, that company of people, the actors. I became the first resident technician. And that's sort of what started me off and gave me connections. And, And then it's becoming the network part. It's, you know, all of a sudden you start meeting people. The theater is a very cliquish concept. No kidding. Yeah, really. Um, <laughs> and it's all based on trust. Yeah. People who have worked with each other satisfactorily want to work with them again because it's always scary to work with somebody you really don't know whether it's going to. And it's very hard to find somebody you can depend upon in any situation who will do some of the thinking for you. Yeah. I, I mean, I know as a director, having a stage manager, I can totally put the weight on is rare. Yeah. It's, uh, you find somebody that good, you don't want to let them go. As, as I used to teach when I was adjunct teaching, in terms of getting students to understand the complexity of theater is uh, really organizing chaos with so many pieces that the trust factor is is that you don't have to micromanage because micromanaging doesn't let people be creative. And the process of doing theater, it's every show is a creative process. Every show is a prototype. It could have been done a hundred times before, but it will not be done the same way in the same space with the same people. It, it just it doesn't happen the same way. So it always becomes a prototype in terms of discovering what works for that moment and what doesn't work for that moment. And it's always based on perceiving your audience as to what works for them. So theater becomes this very complicated process. And I just happen to be good at putting puzzles together. That's, that's why, how I became successful. I was very good at thinking on my feet, solving problems immediately, looking at a piece going, oh, well, let's just rotate it this way and then stick it in there. And then nine out of ten times it would work. One out of ten times it wouldn't, and it would be embarrassing. But those are the times you learn, you know, how to make it more... Nine out of ten times, <laughs> you know, because it is constantly a learning process. Right. 
and that's what I've always enjoyed about the game. I am not, you know, I am not an artist in the theater. I started out thinking I was an artist in the theater. But that's the thing you also have to define if you're playing theater. You have to define, mm -hmm. are you really an artist in the theater or are you a practitioner in the theater? You, you mean know? tech? Well, like tech, you know, are, are you a designer or are you a carpenter? You know, even, even both, you can say both take a level of art, you know. Mm -hmm. There's just a mindset to artists, and I've been dealing with theater artists for 40-something years, and I, I just understand the difference, and that's also what has helped me make myself successful because I was able to pinpoint my value to the theater world. And I knew my value was not as an artist, but as someone who understood artists so well I could organize them. Give me an example of dealing with an artist who's coming up with something creative and you trying to put it into reality, if, well, if, that's, what I'm, if that's what I'm getting from you. Well, here. no, uh, yeah, it, it is trying to, it's, it, is, it is the process of v taking visionaries mm -hmm. and planning it, into some kind of reality without telling them that you can't do it. One of my philosophies in terms of training managers, stage managers, and theater is you can't really say no to an artist. They don't understand that. There always has to be an option you give them. Now, the option you give them may sound like no, but in their thought patterns, they can take that option and then fine-tune it to where they really think it may be Yes. It's like, you want an airplane to land on the stage. Okay. No, I don't think we can get a Boeing 747, but I think we can get a piece of scenery that looks like the steps leading up to a Boeing 747. So that what you can do is take that character, put him on the plane, and the plane takes place off stage. Now, that's living with the idea... But not, and I, this was real. Uh, I did a, a. I don't know. I've, I've, had, I've had an airplane incident myself. Yeah. I was stage manager for Arthur Copet's Wings. Uh -huh. And at one point, there, a biplane needed to go across the stage. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we're all looking at each other going, what, it, does, does anybody own a biplane? Hello? <laughs> um, anybody? And somebody in the back said, I know somebody who owns a biplane that we can use. And we all kind of looked at each other, and we looked at the size of the stage, which was a 1,600-seat theater. It was a state oh. theater in Ithaca. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And we thought, that's going to take out most of the stage. But it ended up being a replica model of it, seriously condensed, but big enough to be seen as we ran a rail across the upper balcony, and somebody pushed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so, you know, so it is, you know, because these visionaries come up, you know. I once did a show called Down by the River Where the Water Lilies Are Disfigured Every Day. Written That's by, the title. Yes, that was written by a playwright by the name of Julie Bavasso. And the ending scene had to be a parachutist crashing through the ceiling of the set. And this was down at Circle Rep, which had a, a ceiling height of 12 feet. And the designer on the show was uh, John Lee Beatty, uh, a rather famous New York designer now, it was just this amazing process of how, it, and this had to be duplicated every night. So between John and myself, figuring out how to first make this ceiling collapse so they could always be put back, 
what kind of debris came out of the ceiling, how the debris was meant to fall on to the stage, how it was cleaned up and reused, and we had all of this figuring, huh? Man, man, Is this what Tony Kushner got his idea for the end of the first part of uh, Angels in America? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know. And But we did all of this and figured it all out. And then we, once it was together, we realized we didn't know how to get the actor <laughs> up to the level he needed to get to to be able to crash through the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that's what I mean in terms of trying to organize this chaos and then trying to figure out these prototypes because you're constantly, I've always said, theater is probably 25%, if not 30% waste. When you're trying to put on these new productions, of, you know, mm-hmm. you're trying to figure out how to make things work based on the visionary. And this right. is Julie Bavasso's vision that this is what I want to see happen. So we figured it out by building an off-rig little tower to the house that he was supposed to crash through, that we built a little winding staircase that he could climb up from the back and then go on a little platform (laughs) and then be able to come through the ceiling. You made it work. Yeah. That has been part of my success is being able to convince people that there are those people who will say, oh, that idea will never work. Let's move on. Let's do something else. And I've always been a person of, of, well... We need to just, we're talking about a vision here. (laughs) So in the translation of vision to reality, you can maintain the vision, even though the reality is not exactly what you expected. Well, why book a play that obviously somebody's read, including a dramaturg, a director, an artistic director, that has somebody crashing through the roof and say, yeah, we can do this without being able to know that you can actually make it happen. Well, that visionaries do that all the time. Visionaries... Yeah, but visionaries do it. I mean, as a playwright myself, I can, I can write anything. I know. Okay, you know, I mean... I, I have, you know, you know it becomes I'm, the classic concept of playwrights who write screenplays in plays. Right. Yes, this takes place in a hundred locations. And I want to be on this scene walking down the Champs de Lausanne in Paris, but right. then I want to be in, 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 in Budapest at the Second World War. We are all <laughs> familiar with the playwrights who have no concept of well, the theater's limitations. limitations yeah. Right. But that's, you know, to me, uh, it's, it, it's all about the words. It's all about the actor in the words. And mm. if the play is good enough then the vision is there for the interpretation of the audience. So you can create a hotel lobby inside 500 square feet of space. The audience is there anyway. I mean, it's they've actually made the effort to be there, so they're willing to meet you halfway, and they're willing to hear the story that, or see the story that well, you're yeah, willing to yeah. tell them. So yeah. as long as literalism is... is it's almost never a factor sometimes. Well, that's it. That's why I say it's always based on the play. But the, there is, you know, the, I, I got annoyed with Broadway because all of a sudden it, Broadway was all about what was visually going on. Right. You know, all of a sudden it was, you know, landing a helicopter or, <laughs> you know, right. a giant chandelier falling or, you know, it all became... Well, it's, it's spectacle. Yeah. It's, it's spectacle. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. And that's why... There is that association between Broadway and back to the original start of Las Vegas. It's the spectacle concept against the 
the art of the word concept, you know, and and uh, that's why it annoys me. Something like um, Hamilton. If you want to see Hamilton, you get, it's a fifteen hundred dollar evening, you know. Those tickets are expensive. I can't believe how expensive they've gotten you know and i don't know and there was some snotty what's the reason for that some snotty uh 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 producer he said well we raised the ticket price to that you know to keep scalpers out (laughs) oh now it's clear i get it yeah right money to go to the scalper we might as well just collect the money and scalp the audiences they're coming in you know my drifting into retirement is not a panic for me because I've seen the whole process and growth of, you know, this whole performing arts concept change to where Broadway itself has started, become for the elite. And Broadway did not start as for the elite. Mm-hmm. It started for the people to be Well, yeah, a lot of things usually do. And then, yeah. It, yeah. and then all of a sudden, yeah, it's a gentrification. Right. The art became gentrified. The real estate became more expensive. It's like so. Disneyland. Yeah, exactly. And New York has become Disneyland now. I want, I want to hit two more things here. First of all, serious congratulations because you were one of the probably few people in this entire profession who has worked in this profession solely in this profession. You weren't washing dishes on the side or driving a bus or, or having a day job to support your theater habit. And you just recently retired. So I think that's quite a uh, uh, an accomplishment to actually make a living in theater, and retire from it. For how many years? 40-some-odd years now? Uh, 43 years. That's hitting all the right moments at the right time and making well, a lot of the right decisions. There was a lot of downtime, too. You know, I mean, I, there were times I had to borrow money from my parents. <laughs> Folks, know. a theater artist right there. Yeah, yeah you know. To, to, Shipping to, a laundry you know, home to Arkansas? Uh, you know, because... Uh, the, what, you know, one of, my, what I, one of my faults that I saw very... Uh, that I felt after having done this for so long and then looking back a bit, you know, was is that I almost moved too fast, too quick. Because what I didn't learn, I first, I learned about the technology of theater, but I didn't really understand the business and the business of theater and networking and keeping your quality of your talent in the eyes of people so they'll think of you. I always thought, oh, okay, I'm off the road now. Oh, I can always get another job. I don't need to look for another job. I don't need to, you know, it'll come back around. People's memories fade. Yeah, and they, people's memories fade. After a while, you know, theater, theater groups become very family-like. And in the beginning, the family is all lovey-dovey, wonderful, beautiful, life is... <laughs> and then after 10 years... You want to slap your brother in the head. So, so the moving yeah, I on... I think that's true with any close group that goes on for a yeah, while. Yeah, but, but then when you want to do that, then it's all about moving on. Right. And then all of a sudden, you know, I mean, I've done some extraordinarily silly things like quit one job going, oh, I'll easily get another job. And then not right. for, a while. for a while. So the fact, you know, that I've been... Doing this for 43 years doesn't mean that I've worked every day of my life for 43 years. Well, yeah, I, I wasn't being literal. But, no, yeah, no, but I mean, I you know, I, I did not, you know, there were there were times, there were times I was really thinking, well, maybe this is it. Maybe I shouldn't mm. move out. And then a little perseverance or talking to the right people or being at the right place at the right time, you know. Yeah. Because when I, it was funny, when I left, when, when, when show business was over for me, after 14 years with Anne Margaret, 
I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll go back to New York. I'll get a job in the theater. Well, theater world did not recognize what I was doing as a qualification to be involved in the theater. They looked at it as, oh, he's done show business. That's not theater. So it was very difficult for me to get connected. (laughs) You would think somebody with the credentials of moving a show like that, that immensity around the world, would be a natural for fitting into a, a stationary theater. You would think so at some places, but some places, you know, it was, you know, theater is broken up into a whole series of genres of types of, you know, it's like typecasting, you know. I want to cast as a bad guy. I'd like to play Prince Charming just once, but, you know, everybody sees me as, you know. And and it's the same way in terms of the projects you handle. Yeah, I probably should have gone more into industrials and stuff like that, you know, big event things but i wanted to go back into the theater you know and 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 and, but it was like oh does that mean i have to start all over again in the theater well i was at a level of oh well i've already done this i'm not going to go back and be a carpenter and (laughs) you know so forward movement is the only movement yeah yeah yeah. so there were there were those times and those questions to where you eventually did make a significant change in your career and you ended up at uh point park university well, I, I, I made a, the significant change I made was, well, and that was the thing, you know, the reason I got into to, uh, performing arts venues in terms of like Point Park University, the Pittsburgh Playhouse, or the Coconut Grove Playhouse in Miami, right. which I'm... Exactly, you, know, you were there for a number of years too. I was yeah. there. I got that job based on the fact that the producer needed someone like me but the reason he hired me because i worked with ann margaret and he thought i could get ann margaret to come and do a show for him of course yeah yeah you know and that was his in the back of his mind even though that was not part of the scenario of discussion that was what i could tell was in his mind right you know and um and so he gave me a job now i started out as their production manager after i'd been an associate producer because i had to step down a little bit you know because that was showbiz, <laughs> right. this is theater. But within three years, I went from production manager to director of production to associate producer, because then he understood what I could do, yeah. you know. And and that sort of, you've got to be ready to make those kind of decisions of which I've made, you know. But it was all based on me not understanding the real business of it, understanding networking, understanding maintaining your connections, and understanding and always looking forward at the future rather than sitting on your laurels. And uh, there were a few times I just sat on my laurels because I was so young mm-hmm. when all that stuff happens. It's like these young sports figures and people like that that, oh, hell, I'll do this forever and people will just be knocking at my door and it'll all be coming in and everything yeah. will be hunky-dory, but... This is one of the main things you taught your students at Point Park, because uh, aside from your technical duties there, which I believe is production director, producing director, but you also taught courses. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I taught I taught theater management. So yes, and I usually taught to stage managers and designers, and I taught basically the business of theater, because that's a lot of people don't understand the economics of theater is very very expensive, mm-hmm. you know. It's one of the most expensive art forms. The whole networking thing is critical because unless you're going to write the check, somebody else is always going to write the check. 
and then you're going to make a living. Mm-hmm. And that's what I tried to teach. The, the business of theater is to learn how to make a living at it because it is there. It will always be there. It doesn't make any difference how big or small. If you want a prop, the business is how do I get it? Mm-hmm. What's the economics involved? Do I steal it? Do I borrow it? <laughs> do I buy it and then sell it? <laughs> you know, it's all that back and forth because, yeah. you know, this kind, this kind of art form involves so many people that deserve to be able to make a living at it. And that becomes, you know, if you want to do it on the level and scale where the audience appreciates it most. Because professionalism is professionalism. And a professional group of people doing theater, the experience for the audience is always going to be, for me, greater than the hobby of doing theater. You know, and that's why there's an economics to it. You know. Well, that's uh, that's one of the things that's rarely taught any place is that theater is a business. Yeah. Well, or the business of theater. I mean, theater arts management is one thing. Yeah. Teaching individual artists, and I consider not just the playwright, not just the actors, but the set designers, the lighting designers. Yeah, yeah. These are all people who have their own visions because they create the set. They yeah. create... The lights that you most of the time don't even notice, but augment the play in a positive, enriching way that they come up with these things. So they are indeed artists, but teaching them to survive in this in this business, which is ridiculously and has such a fickle memory, as, as you've stated on several yeah. occasions here. Well, even um, knowing how you're getting paid, you know, am right. I am I contract? Am I on? payroll and I having to pay the government taxes. I mean, I have so many designer friends who at the end of the year all of a sudden go, oh my God, I was supposed to give the government all this money and now I don't have it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, you know, it, it is a reality of, of, of life. And it's and, kind of a basic thing learning to pay taxes, isn't well, it? Yes. But a basic thing is, is that the real world tends to employ people where, another entity makes sure those are being taken care of, like working for a university, you know. But I, working for a university and having that being taken care of, I was hiring people that they had to sign little documents saying, yeah, I'm just going to give you a check. You're on your own. 